Tammo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Ammo saranto suche doye ulahadi sanmiyao sanputoshe. Ammo saranto suche doye ulahadi sanmiyao sanputoshe. Wushan. Shen Shen Wei Niao The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it, Within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master and Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture. It's the 28th of October, yes? 27th? 27th of October, Saturday night here in Berkeley, California, and we're going to be looking into the Avatamsaka Sutra, the uh, flower adornment, flower garland sutra. Here we are. The title of the sutra on the front cover and the names of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are what we begin our lecture with by chanting their names and invoking their presence. Here we go. Please turn in your text to page 70 and 71. We're at the very bottom, the last paragraph.
I'll give you the line and you give it back. Wan e ruli jang su together he reflects upon the principles after he has heard them acquires the four dhyanas and formless samapatis four others five penetrations in sequence then arise not following their power does he undergo rebirth okay here's how I would translate it now he reflects upon the principles after he's heard them acquires the four samadhis, the four dhyanas and the four formless samadhis. Five others, five abilities in sequence then arise. He is no longer reborn by the power of karma. So that last line is quite different. All right, let's take a look here. Chinese, one word for word. Please follow me on the next to last line, the one that begins W-E-N-I-E. Here we go. So... Hearing, having done so, one e, hearing, past uh, perfect, having heard, like principle, correctly thinks, thinks, correctly considers and reflects. Okay, hearing, having done so, according to principle, according to pattern. That word means pattern, particular correctly considers okay try it again he correctly meaning the right way he correctly considers according to the patterns of principle after he has heard these dharmas all right something like that next line he gains gains two words both mean to get he gets he masters he takes hold of he um, possesses four Chan meditation states the four dhyanas and the samadhi states that have no form They've got no color, they've got no form, they've got no substance to them, no shape. Um, what are those? Those are... Okay, we're, let's do the language first before we get into the meaning. So, gaining, gaining, four dhyanas, you have to add the, the add, and, and the formless samadhi states. Okay? Got it? So, having, he thinks correctly about the patterns of principle after he's heard them, and then he gets the four meditative states of dhyana 
and the four, that's not stated, and the four formless samadhis. All right? So he hears the Dharma. He's able to really meditate well. That's what it says. Line number three. What's number three? Si deng wu tong si di qi. Next, si deng, the four deng. The deng here means of them. It's just, it's an empty word that means those four. Those four. Wu tong, and the five. Tong is shen tong here. It means psychic abilities. Each arise sequentially. Come up one by one, is what it says. So, the four other states, the four other meditative states, and the five kinds of psychic abilities all come alive one by one, in sequence, one by one. So, he gets these things. What are the four? Well, you can describe it in a bunch of different ways. Mostly the commentators don't. They, it could be the, the, what are called the four casting off, the four, four states that cast off from the back. Um, it could be four visions, the four abilities of vision, although usually there are five. And the wutong, usually there are six. It's, Master Hua mentions that he doesn't get the sixth tong, the sixth ability, which is unique to Buddhas. That's the, uh, the ending outflows. Lo jin tong. He doesn't get that one because he's only a third stage bodhisattva. So these are, there are different numbers of, of uh, meditative accomplishments that he could, we could plug into the si dang, the four kinds. So four kinds, five abilities, all arise one by one. Now, this one is a little interesting. This is interesting. And what's interesting is the qi, the third word. The first word, not, sui, following, qi, its, or their. Li, strength. Are, he, and, shou, gets, sheng, born. So just if you look at the Chinese, not following their strength, does is he reborn? What? What's strength? We have to interpolate here. Um, it's not following the state. Does the chi refer to what was just talked about previously? Grammatically, you would think, yeah, it's it's referring to what was just mentioned. Theirs, its. Okay, not following their strength or power, is he reborn? But he's not reborn according to the states of meditation. That's not what it's talking about here. Um, that would not make sense that he is not born following the power, the strength of the dhyanas, of the samadhis, of the samapatis, of the, the four stages of casting off the back. What, what is it? It's not that. It's, there are different ways to read this. Some people would say it's a um, it's a translation, an imprecise translation, opening it up wide to allow for um, 
a wider interpretation, that it's ambiguous on purpose. Somebody else would say it's translated referring to something other than the the chi here is just a is just a pronoun. There, it's not following their strength, not because of them. You could say it's not because of that that he gets reborn. That what? Well, I translated it this way. He's no longer reborn by the power of karma. What's being talked about here? Now, there's... People will tell you that we come to this world for one of two reasons. One reason we come to this world is because of our karma. They call it the wind of karma. blows us here. We have no choice. Uh, the phrase in Chinese is uh, we, because of delusion we do deluded things we create karma we act and then the retribution follows we do things we, we're, we're confused in the darkness we do stuff the retribution comes we're deluded we act we get re- repaid, right? Not always badly. Sometimes the delusion is not so severe. But in any case, retribution follows the actions. That's the way it is mostly. And they talk about it as a wind. You don't want to come, got no choice. The wind blew you here. Our karma is, that's the way it works until we're done, until our karma is exhausted. The state of the Buddha is somebody who is ye jin, qing kong, his karma's ended, his emotions are emptied out. All right? Ye jin, qing kong, that's the Buddhist state. Karma is over, ye jin. Qing kong, your emotions are emptied out. Notice that it's an active verb, emptied. You do the emptying of those emotions. It's not that emotions are empty. They're not. The bodhisattva still feels everything more keenly than he did before, or she did before. But he can... see those emotions rise and not move before them. The emotions rise and he's not confused by them or she's not confused by them. Ye jin, qing kong, that's the Buddha. What are we mostly? We are blown here by the wind of our karma. We arrive in the next womb right on time with the exact mom and dad that we bargained for, that we contracted for. That's, that's not to say no freedom. However, these ties are really strong. The Master Hua would say, we see each other over and over again. Here we are. We change our faces, change our surnames, but we're back. Why? Because we have tied up so much positive and negative ties with the people in our lives that we might think to avoid them, but we can't. So the wind of karma blows us right back to where we belong. Now, in principle, in thought after thought, we have the chance to change it. But the, the power of that wind is really strong. Our teacher would describe it as a river running downstream. Potentially, that water could run the other way, right? But are you going to turn around the water of the river? Mm, hard. Down it goes. It's flowing and it's deep. 
And our karma brings us back like a deep, long-flowing river. So that's the way most of us are. Bodhisattvas, on the other hand, Bu Sui Chi Li, our Shosham, are they come back to this world because of their vows by choice. They're free to choose when and where they come back. And they come back often by transformation, so it's said. Now that's truly an inconceivable state. But I can really get my mind around the idea that a bodhisattva would say, yeah, I really want to teach this person. I really want them, because they can hear me. I have a good connection with that person. They understand my language, my actions, my I raise an eyebrow and they get the whole point, right? Sometimes I don't speak and they get through the silence. I can teach that person. So they come back as your brother, sister, father, mother, boss, employee, friend, hubby, spouse, child, and teach you. Or enemy sometimes, right? And teach you. So that's what a bodhisattva would do. To come back by choice, come back by vows, instead of by karma. So, that's a big idea, isn't it? I mean, in, if you're a Catholic, uh, you say in catechism as a kid, who made me? God made me. I didn't come back by karma, I didn't come back by vows. I came back because of God's will, because of the Creator. All right, well, that, that answer works for a large, large, large number of people. The Buddha says, no, actually, it's cause and effect. It's what we do that brings us back. Because what we do has a power. It's got a vector force. You know that the word vector? It's this, once you set something in motion, it tends to stay in motion. Like a rocket going through space, or a golf ball propelled, tennis ball propelled by those strings on the racket that goes across the net until the strength fails, and the vector force fails. So our karma is just like that. The deeds we do have power to propel us until they're done. And then we're free. But the, the, as I understand it through the sutras and through our teacher, the, the ocean of karma of all of our deeds is real deep. And it's moving. And it's tied up with people. We are connected to everybody we we interact with and how important it is to make those interactions positive, wholesome, beneficial, benefic, meaning basically kind. Then the next time we see them, there's good feeling and mutual benefit. So uh, Master Shrenhua would say, he would say, be really careful of the thoughts in your mind about other people. Do not casually wish other people ill. Do not casually curse people. Do not casually be mean or just lazy mean. Mean because it's a habit. He said the the retribution is fierce. He said if we could see what's waiting for us with every negative thought that we send out, He said, you would not be lazy with your thoughts. You would be kind to everybody. 
And he would just say it that way. It sounds really like a warning, you know. He would, it sounded really fierce when he'd describe it that way. That, that if we could see what's waiting for us with every negative thought or harsh word or gossipy comment or mean and nasty thought, we would not do those things. He said, because it's just every single one is waiting for us. And as a result, he would say, be good to people. Because that will be waiting for us. It's not, there's not a single one falls out of the loop somehow and is just ignored. Every single harsh word that we say is waiting for us. Right there. And all you can do is just say, oh, I did that. So if, if really we take liberation seriously, right? That word, jiethua, liberation. Here it is. He doesn't follow their strength to get reborn. Other strength. Another way to translate this would be he doesn't follow other strength. None other than the power of the si chan wu si ding, si dang wu tong. Right? That would be another way to translate this. He doesn't follow any other strength than these, meaning no karma. Right? But in general, I think the point here, the sutra is pointing out that at this point, the bodhisattva is getting free. He or she is getting free of the wind of karma. Right? You know, what does that chi mean? That third word. Its strength. I don't think it's referring to... Because bu, it definitely does not follow their strength, meaning the dhyanas, no. He does indeed follow their strength. Think about this. The Urstor Sutra says, in the Saha world, uh, every single movement of thought is an offense. <laughs> that every single time we move our thoughts, there's an offense involved. Now that, when I, I was really unhappy to read that, it's like, oh my God. These Buddhists just so pessimistic, you know, so negative. Well, Urstor Bodhisattva is not trying to sell us books. He's like telling us the truth. So if, if every thought is there like tripping us up because our minds are so deeply dark and we don't even know it, what a wonderful reason to learn to meditate. All right? What happens when you get into the four dhyanas and the formless samadhis? Your mind is not pumping out negative thoughts, right? You're sitting there. Your heart stops. Your breath stops. Your coarse thoughts stop. Your subtle thoughts stop. That's the four dhyanas. There's actual transformation of your autonomic processes. Your metabolism changes because you're sitting really still, right? The things in your body that you ordinarily have no control of, your digestion, your elimination, right? People say, wow, Master Xu Yun sat still for 30 days. The first question is always, how did he go to the bathroom? <laughs> People always wonder. Right? People would come up to the bowing monks and say, the, the, the interviewers, right? 
Chronicle and the LA Times, they would come up and they would do the, the regular standard questions. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. World peace, uh-huh, yeah. City of 10,000 Buddhas, right. Yeah, Buddhist monks, yeah. Okay, we're done with the interview. Guys, can I ask you something off the record? How do you go to the bathroom? What do you do? I mean, all of the gas station bathrooms in L.A. are shuttered, out of order, right? What do you do? Always ask that question. So, yeah, that's right. Master Empty Cloud, Master Shuyin, sat still for 30 days. Didn't move. Didn't, like, sneak out, you know, when we weren't looking. What did he do? He had control of his autonomic processes. Digestion. Elimination. And perfectly healthy, not, you know, sick or weird or have an empty leg or something. No. So, how interesting. If you're sitting still like that, your karma, bit by bit, is not accumulating. It's not gathering bad. You know, as the Restore Sutra says. It's just that most of us don't. We don't, we don't take the time. All right, so here in this passage, we have all these names of meditation states. Four dhyanas, the four formless attainments. Let me talk about the wusudin, what are called the samapatis in our first translation. We're not going to use that word. We're going to actually translate. What are those? Here is a very interesting idea, and I'd like people to kind of take this away. There's a crossover between these meditative states and the states of gods in heaven. How about that? And this is, what do you call this? This is just the the Buddha Dharma. This is the lore of the Buddha Dharma. Sometimes Master Shrenhua would be explaining. He would say, Si Chan Ba Ding. Other times he would say, Si Chan Tian. The four dhyanas... And then sometimes the four dhyana heavens, right? As you're reading through Scherfer's commentaries, you'll run into these at different levels, different places. Well, what's the difference? And honestly, they seem to overlap. What is it? You can enter a state of meditation where you, ru chanding, you, you, we, our, our jargon word is you enter the dhyana samadhi. You merge with this state of meditation. And as you do, your state right here in this body sitting there is identical with the state of certain of the gods in heaven. Your physical state? Mm, I don't think so. Although I don't really know, honestly. Your spiritual, mental, astrophysical, Buddha nature, whatever that thing is that enters the on that is the same as a god in the heavens. So, talk about it the other way. Gods who are reborn in the heavens because of the blessings that they create largely as a human are in a state that is constantly in samadhi. The minds, bodies, essential spirit, this word that we keep kicking around, the the nature of that deva in the heavens, are they a human? No, they're gods, right? What's their state like? Always in dhyana, constantly. That's the state of the god. Free of discursive thoughts, free of desires, 
free of egotistic cravings. Subtle, mind you, but that's their state. How interesting. Hold on one second. So, that's what I'm saying. I'm trying to make the point that some of the meditative states and the states of gods overlap entirely, completely, are completely the same. The bodies that are doing it are different. It's still your body when you're meditating like that. It's still the God's body in the heavens. He's not a human. He's a God or she. But their ability to meditate, their mind, is in this state of ishin bulan, single-minded concentration. Connie? How could they get there if they didn't practice? Um, they, you can't. But it's that in previous lives. I mean, how did the gods get there? In previous lives, they chanted blessings, but not necessarily for concentration. What I understand, good question. Okay, Connie's question is, how did they get to the state of the gods? Because she was working on the idea that you become a god through blessings. Correct. That's exactly right. But one of the blessings of being a god is that if you apply yourself very quickly, you can get that state of stillness because your mind is not full of desire, not full of self. All right, let me give you a, a road map, okay? Talking about the gods, there are three levels One is called the desire realm. One is called the form realm. One is called the formless realm. The form realm has, the desire realm, first one has six. The formless realm has 28, 25, 28. 28, 25, 25, 28. Depends on how you count them. The formless realm has four. So six, 28, four. Okay. The first six, those first six levels of gods, the minds of the gods still have desires. They're really dramatically more subtle and fine at the top, but they're still in the realm of desire. When you get to that sixth desire realm heaven, called in Chinese, the heaven where your satisfaction comes from others' desires. Right at that point, you make a big change. And desires cease before you get to the next level, which is the form realm. Those are called Brahma gods. Brahma gods have no more desire. So, that's my point, is when Connie's question was, how do, you, how do you get that state as a deva of dhyana samadhi? Well, you have cultivated a long time to make your desires really subtle and, you know, pure, really pure. Um, what's it like? Okay, what are the desires? It's really specific. And this is, I have to say... Something I really like about the Buddha Dharma is how clear this is. This is not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of somebody else preferring it. Here's what it says. It says desire right now before we meditate. 
say we're not meditators. Our lives are mostly passed in engagement with money, sexual desire, fame, or face, food and drink, and physical comfort, sleep. Mostly the world pursues that stuff. That's really true. Wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep. They call those the course five desires. If we can get to a place where that stuff is okay, but it's not the beginning and the end, right? I know people for whom money is the beginning and the end. It really is. Money is the whole deal for a lot of people. And other people, they get their mind in a state of, of we call it a dirty mind. Somebody who's always thinking about sexuality. Other people, fame is it. And by not fame, I want to be famous. But fame meaning you can't insult me. My face is the most important thing. That's the search for fame. Fame is fame and shame is the opposite. You can't you you have dissed me and I'm gonna retaliate. Well, sex, fame, food and comfort. Two more. Suppose we get to a place where those five things are not the biggest deal. Where you have more or less is okay if you're a little short on them, okay too. There are five subtle desires. What are the five subtle desires? And they say they are stages, states of... Leo, you might want to watch there. Can we, that I'm going to have to pay attention and I'd rather not. Okay, so uh, the subtle states of desire are sights, sounds, smells, tastes, sensations of touch, and some would add dharmas. Five subtle desires. Who has those desires? Meditators do. Meditators have those subtle desires, right? You're sitting there and everything is fine and the other, the coarse external desires are pretty quiet for you. It's like money doesn't turn your eyes red and, and you look at other people's bodies and you can see their skeletons and you can see their blood vessels and you can see their excrement and urine. You're not attracted, not enough to move your mind and everything's fine. But then as you're sitting there, you think, wow, I have never been so comfortable in my life. I heard the Dharma master say that when I meditated, my heart was going to stop. I think my heart has stopped. I feel so good. This is just great. This is the best meditation I've ever had. Ding. Why did you stop to sit so soon? You should. Oh, okay. I got attached to comfort. So it's really subtle. The subtle desires, you can get attached to a sound. You can get attached to no sound. You can get attached to wanting things to be free of thoughts. And the presence of a thought makes you upset, right? So a subtle desire, still a desire. Okay, so it's really not easy. So wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep, coarse desire, Sight, sounds, smells, taste, sensations of touch, and dharmas, meaning thoughts, 
If you attach to them, your meditation, like just before, moves. You move. So, okay, let's get to a place where the coarse desires don't move, the subtle desires don't move, and what happens? You enter dhyana, chanding. Your body and your mind and your spirit, essential spirit, merge like never before. Kind of like a really well-tuned car. Like one of the best examples, are you all too young to remember sewing machines? Any, does your mom have a sewing machine? My mom had a sewing machine. I grew up with a royal typewriter and a singer sewing machine. They were right beside each other. My father invested in two machines back then. And they were mechanical machines, boy, oh boy. The Singer sewing machine, you turned, David knows what I'm talking about. You turned the, the, by hand, and then you got the foot going. Remember? You turned the, the, the spindle on top, and then the foot, like that. And the needle went, right? That sewing machine worked so well. It was, and it, then you moved the cloth, and the needle, blah, 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 like that. Sewing machines. That was like the epitome of a good, a good working machine, right? And what else? Typewriters. It worked really well, right? And you could get it going, and you get that, get into a rhythm with that machine. Well, dhyana is kind of like that. That is to say, your body, your mind, and that other piece, call it your soul, your spirit, your Buddha nature, your essential mind, all kind of it's like a well-oiled machine. And you're not noticing. You're not thinking, boy, my body, mind, and essential spirit is just like a well-oiled machine. Ding! You're out of samadhi immediately. As soon as you have a thought about how good you're meant, bonk, you're right back. Self, desires, Right? It's just that subtle. So that begins to happen at the top of the six desire realm, heaven. And there's an interim place. Now, I'm going to say a little more about this because this is really, really interesting. And because people here meditate, we are actual practitioners here, and the winter chan is one month away, maybe six weeks. You need to know that who lives in that top desire heaven? Mara does. Mara is who? That's Molang, the, the demon king, the king of demons, the chief force of evil that opposes the Buddha. Right. Buddha Dharma talks about this kind of apocalyptic, good and evil, eschatological. There is an, a big demonic evil force that wants the Buddha and his disciples to fail, to lose, and wants very much to stay in charge. Here you go. Anybody who has studied uh, the kind of the mythology of cultures will be interested to know that in Buddhism, the, the, the chief evil guy is in the heavens. Just like who? The Hebrew scriptures says Satan lives in the heavens. Connie. Um, so, 
can't, you have to speak up. Okay, how do you know, she said, everything is made from the mind, and evil thoughts create evil rewards, so far so good. How do you know if something like that happens, whether it's your evil retribution coming back or a demon intervening? That's a really good question, and the answer is you have to have wisdom, and you have to have a good teacher to help you out. Now... That's your, your question actually was anticipating something I was going to say. Here's, here's the idea. To get to that state of dhyana, that state where the first dhyana opens up in the form realm, the second level, out of the desire realm, you actually cross over. Kind of a, you go out a door into another room, if you can think of it that way. And your desires have gotten very quiet very calm. You can sit there and the smell of good food doesn't make you salivate when you're meditating, right? And somebody slandering you and even insulting your mother doesn't make you upset and angry. Why? Because you are, you have transformed those desires. You have lightened them up. You've kind of erased them bit by bit by bit. So they're not so heavy. They don't sit on you like a burden. Right at that point, if you can go beyond desire into the form realm, into dhyana, you have left Mara's realm. You're beyond Mara, the demon king's control. Mara doesn't like that. Because why? Once you're in the dhyanas, you're essentially beyond her ability to influence. So you get lots of tests in that interim. Now, let me say to everybody, don't worry about this. And if you're taking notes and I get an email during this next week and say, Dharma Master, I got a test from Mara and you know, I just, I Mara whispered in my ear and told me to take all my money and to give it to the first homeless person I saw. I knew it was a test, Dharma Master, and so I did that. And I'm going to sue you because now I'm in trouble with the, I can't pay my taxes and I'm coming to the monastery to live because you, you know, not. Okay. Why can I tell you that? I'm not telling you this information because I expect that all of us are right at the point of being tested by Mara as we leave the desire room. Maybe we are. If so, jayo, jayo. If you really are at that point in your meditation, come sit in the monastery and we'll talk, okay? Mostly we're not there yet. To get to that state where you're about to enter the dhyanas, you have to meditate a lot. You have to be a pretty much a full-time meditator. Full-time, said you. Are you applying for the position of full-time meditator? Okay, full-time meditator. Now... There are lots of ways to define that. Um, the, the most, the clearest 
way to measure that is sincerity, not ours. You have to be really free of desire. How do you get to be free of desire? Meditate a lot. And your precepts have to be pretty good. Now, Shurfu said, anybody can. Anybody can. It's not the case that because somebody wears a precept sash, they are the ones who will end desire and enter dhyana first. More often, because monks have no kids to raise, no job to show up for, they don't have as many obligations, they don't have as many distractions. So instead of asking me, who's a full-time meditator, let me ask you, what do you do with your eyes, your ears, your nose, your tongue, your body, and your mind when you are going through the day? Where do you use your six sense organs? If you can tell me that your six sense organs mostly watch your mind, and as soon as you get angry, as soon as you get greedy, you're able to disengage, then I think you are a prime candidate to be considered a full-time meditator. It doesn't have anything, well, it does have something to do with how many hours you sit with your legs crossed. More important is what you do with your six senses when your legs are not crossed. That's a full-time meditator. Somebody who can be scolded and not need to get in that word to prove yourself. Somebody who can eat or not eat, and it's okay. It's not the end of the world, right? Somebody who, if their coffee comes without cream and sugar, they drink it all the same. It's not the case they're upset if they don't have two sugars and it has to be raw, organic sugar, you know, or they're upset. People get upset over a little. The, the paper's late. Your paper didn't arrive before you had to get in the car and get to the bus station or the voluntary carpool, right? You missed the paper that day. You didn't think about it all morning. That, that's what I mean. That's what a full-time meditator is. Somebody whose mind is pretty much like this all day long, right? Before we meditate, what are our minds like? High and low. Really upset, really delighted, really joyful, really bummed. That's a mind that is not cultivated. Once we cultivate, over time, it gets like this. Okay, and things come and they're okay. Things go and they're okay. Then you, when you work, it's like, yeah, like that. Okay, so, yeah. Um, that person can enter samadhi. When you do, you get tested because why? Pretty quickly, you're going to be beyond Mara's realm. And what I'm describing to you, it's not that the Buddha likes you more or you bought the right ticket. It's because actually you, your body, mouth, and mind have put yourself into a place that is similar to the realms where gods live. Okay? That was the takeoff point of this whole discussion, right? That there's an overlay between the states of the gods and a meditator. So these are called Si Chan Tian, the four Dhyana heavens. Isn't that interesting? This is big stuff. We're actually in a realm that gods know about, which is, that's amazing, right? 
I guarantee you my Sunday school lessons did not talk about getting to a place where you're rivaling God, much less God's plural. Nobody approaches God. You don't. God is completely independent of his creatures. Okay, so that's what it's like. You can get to a place where you can move between the realms of living beings in the human realm and the gods. It's a porous boundary. There's a door between the realms of humans and the realms of gods. And it has to do with right here. So this bodhisattva, having heard the Dharma, thinks of it correctly, according to principle, and then he or she gets the four dhyana states, the four formless attainments, the four other states of samadhi, the five psychic abilities, and he is no longer born through any other karma, such as body, mouth, and mind. Okay, liberation. That's liberation at that point. Somebody who is free of the kind of constraints that we are not free of. Imagine if you could choose your mother and father. Think about that. Imagine if you could choose your sibling. How different your life would be. Imagine if you could choose your nationality. Imagine if you could choose your socioeconomic status. How interesting, right? So... Is it a, is it a, um, how, how free is free? The Bodhisattva doesn't, he is not reborn by any other karma than these. That's kind of one way to translate that. So why would our teacher come back as a Chinese Chan monk? Why would he come? <laughs> you have an answer to that one? <laughs> Go ahead. What's that? You have a guess? Okay. Hmm. Okay. That's a good answer. And you have more? That's a good answer. So why why did why did our teacher come back as a Chinese Buddhist monk? Because most of his disciples are still in Asia. And you know what they say? Um, the monk who comes from far away is the one who really lectures best. You know that one? The monk, the monk from far away lectures better. Meaning, the grass is greener. So, when I go to, to China, I'm a hit. <laughs> right? Why? 
blue eyes. A little different, right? I have a distinct advantage over Chinese monks, which is I don't look Chinese, so I must lecture better, you know, and vice versa. When Shifu came here, it's like he looks just the way he should, right? Um, how many people um, saw Master Shuyin in a dream? Okay. When you were young, you saw Master Shuyin? Oh, boy. Okay. So Connie saw Master Shuyin as a kid. Um, I have met housewives who have come to like a Dharma talk and gone, I, I don't know why I'm here. I have no business being here, but I had this dream of this long white beard and he looks so good, so kind. You know, I take out a picture. That's him, Master Shuyin. So you never know. Okay, let's take a look. Having heard the Dharma, he thinks about it correctly according to principles. And then he gets the four dhyanas, the four formless attainments, the, the, four, the four formless samadhis, the four attainments, the five psychic abilities which, arrive, which arise sequentially. And he is not reborn by any other karma than these. He's no, he's no longer born by other karma. Okay. Isn't that an interesting question? Imagine if we could choose where we come to. Now, that's hard because our teacher, with, with his amazing affinities with the Dharma, still brought karmic retribution with him. He was able to deal with it, but he still had karma. The Buddha himself had three debts to pay as he came. Karma is has it, karma does not favor you or me. It operates independently of how you feel about it. How interesting, right? I mean, that's really scary when you think that karma is impersonal. And it's just like you don't want to be stopped. You don't want to be pulled over by that California Highway Patrolman. You don't want that light in your rearview mirror. Guess what? It's there. Uh, would I see your driver's license and your registration, please? Ma'am, do you know how fast you were going? <laughs> Sir? You know, uh, yes, officer. Um, so when karma comes to call, it's, it's a force on its own. Here is somebody who has meditated to a place where they can, when they're in that samadhi, put their body, mouth, and mind into a place where they're no longer creating, at that time, negative or positive karma. You kind of merge with that realm to where your thoughts are no longer you know, doing what Urstar Bodhisattva says, which is, qi xin dong nian wu fei shi zi. Every time thoughts arise, we're on the road to negative karma. If you're in samadhi, 
that process is very quiet. Very quiet. So pretty soon you don't have karmic retribution pushing you around. The wind of karma is very still for you. Any any responses to that idea? How much can bowing affect karma? Um, I understand it can do a lot, what I gather. Um, there's a saying that goes, yi li hung he sha. There's that each bow erases negative karma in number, the amount of negative karma, like the sands, grains, and the Ganges River. The sand grains in the Ganges River are really fine sand, really, really fine. And in any handful of Ganges River sand, there's a lot of sand grains. That's, that's why that analogy is there, because the sand is really fine. So when you, with a single bow, you're wiping out lots and lots of karma. Did you all hear that? Have you heard that one before? Why is that? It's Nobody likes to bow. Bowing goes against all of the the me, right? Basically, where everything in the world, the marketplace, is there to reinforce this is the tallest thing in the world, only me and God. You know? And when you do this, it's really different. It's a very different situation. So, most people don't like to humble themselves. Bowing is humbling. Bowing puts us down, puts the self down. And every religious tradition says pride goes before fall. Pride is a sin. It's one of the, the seven sins, right? Pride. And the Buddha would say the self is the cause of the problem. That if we could do whatever it takes to get rid of the self, the problems go away. Right. So that's an answer, Connie. Bowing is is really effective in leveling out that karmic karmic thing. Okay, can we turn the page over? Page seventy-two, seventy-three. Pusajutsujendorfungyang ting wan xin jeding. The Bodhisattva dwelling here can see many Buddhas. He makes offerings to and hears them speak with certitude of mind. He cuts off wrong delusions and becomes more pure, just as pure gold, when smelted, does not decrease in weight. Okay, you'll you notice we changed some of that language. The Bodhisattva can see a lot of Buddhas when he or she gets to this third stage. He makes offerings to them, and he hears them speak, and his mind is really sure, decisive. He cuts off delusion. There's no deviant delusion is really redundant. He cuts off delusions, and he becomes more pure, just as 
Genuine gold. Pure gold, not true gold. There's no false gold. Well, there is false gold, but just as gold does not decrease in weight when you smelt it down. Okay. This is the refrain. This phrase pops up in each of the grounds. The Bodhisattva progressively gets, he progressively uh, purifies himself, herself through this dhyana samadhi, through this practice of meditation. And at each step, the Bodhisattva sees more Buddhas. First ground, a few. Second ground, a few more. Third ground, more. And so forth. The Buddhas appear to the Bodhisattva as he or she moves through the stages. As your Buddha nature becomes more purified, more Buddhas appear. When those Buddhas appear, the Bodhisattva makes offerings to them. And as he hears them speak Dharma, he has fewer doubts. He gets it. She gets it right away. Getting better at listening to the Dharma. Isn't that interesting? That as you progress, your ability to hear and make sense of what you're hearing improves. There's fewer layers. There's less stuff between you and your Buddha nature. And the Dharma is the Buddha nature in, in language. The Bodhisattva cuts off delusions and becomes more pure. Just as gold does when smelted. It doesn't decrease in weight. Did you all know that? That when you put gold into the fire, it, the impurities go away, but it doesn't become less. Otherwise, nobody would put it in the fire because you're burning up the gold. No, it's just the impurities, the dross goes away. So the Buddha's, the Bodhisattva's nature becomes this way. Okay, this must be heavy going. I see people nodding out a lot. Sometimes it's, it's not, you're tired, it's not your sleepy. It's that sometimes the Dharma, we get full really quick. It's, it's true. And that's not a bad state. I've seen that for years and years and years and years and years. Sometimes when Shurfa would be explaining really profound stuff, people would, their eyes would glaze right away and they would start to nod. You'd ask them afterwards, they heard it all, but it's just like the conscious mind can't, can't take it all in. It's amazing. This, is, this stuff is, if, we could, if this dharma had form, we would probably see, uh, what would it be? It'd be things with colors and wings coming to land inside. And, and when our storehouse is full, it's like, that's it. Lock the gates. I got enough. I'm digesting. I'm swallowing. I'm chewing it. Enough. Phil. One of the uh, uh, statements you made, uh, imagine if you could choose your dot, dot, dot. There's some schools of thought that say that you actually do choose your dot, dot, dot. So having said that, um, it's really um, quite insightful if you meditate to see that if you did choose your dot, 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 you know, how you became what you are. What is the dot, dot, dot? Parents. 
Uh, I ended up getting a huge good job. Mm. Got it. Okay. Right. So you choose you chose New York? Yeah, there you go. So think about okay, liberation. That's that's the bodhisattva somehow is once you can enter the dhyanas and you bu sui li or shoshang as it says, you don't you're no longer born by anything other than these. In other words, you're freer than you were when you were born by karma. What about affinities? This is really not simple. We're talking about where we come from. If you're a Catholic, you've been through catechism, and I think probably very few people in the room did. The, 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 The first question is, who made me? The answer is, God made me. Okay? Give it to God. Let go and let God. In other words, you didn't have anything to do with it, is that answer. The Buddha Dharma says, no, actually, what we did makes us until we stop the doing. There's a point where you stop doing and you can choose because of your vows. Does that mean you're totally free? No, the bodhisattva comes back because he or she says, I'm going to teach them. Buddhas, they say, come back in order to teach the people with whom they have affinities, to teach the ones they can. So what if those ones you want to teach are people you can't stand, mostly. But you came back precisely because they need you the most. Think about that. What if the current parents you live with or that you relate to, your parents, mostly are pains in the neck, but you know that they're the ones that you have to, quote, cross over? Boy, that gets interesting, doesn't it? When you think about this, you choose your parents, you choose your family, you choose your dot, 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 right? Do you think the Bodhisattva chooses the copacetic ones, the easy ones, the no effort ones? Probably not. Probably the Bodhisattva chooses the hardest ones. That's an interesting idea. Right? Okay. Where did Master Shrinhua put his monasteries in America? First one was in Chinatown, when first one the Americans showed up at. Second one was in the Mission District, across from the projects, where there were gunshots at night, bullets zipping by the door. I heard somebody killed three feet from my head one night on Albion in 15th. Shot down. One of the original Black Panthers was shot in a parked car right beside our dining room. 
Where else? Seattle, Skid Row, the original Skid Row, you know, the phrase meaning Chungxiang, the, the, where, where the bums live, came from Seattle. Our monastery was on Skid Row. Los Angeles, we were in on 6th Street where we saw someone killed right outside the window, Marty and I, where I won't tell you about. So where else? Well, Vancouver, we were on East Hastings where people died in single-resident occupancy hotels every single day. Some 400 bodies came out of those hotels around us in a year. And that's where Shurfu put the monasteries, right? By karma, because the Buddhists are poor? No. Shurfu could have put us in the suburbs. We could have had monasteries on the mountaintop. You have to take a bus or a limousine up there to go in the parking lot and then pay to, you know, because it's so, No. The monastery, like, if you think about every city has a drain, the lowest spot where the water flows down and the garbage is left, the hairs and the, 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 the stuff, that's where the monastery is all right at the drain of the city. Every time. How interesting. That's where the Bodhisattva put his monastery. I mean, Sherpa would scold me for saying that. That's where our teacher put us by choice where it was really hard to stay in. Not a blade of grass, but smoking. The only grass we saw came up in smoke. Different kind of grass. Not a bit of green. In the urban jungle is where the Bodhisattva put his monastery. How interesting, right? So if you choose to stay, if you choose your, the people to stay with, what if you choose the worst possible people and places to live? That's a selfless act, right? This kind of turns it on its head. We think, oh, I get to choose where I want to be. I want to be where it's really nice. Not. So that's this is interesting. Where would you? Where would we choose to be? And I think the answer is, you follow your affinities. Follow your affinity. Question. What kind of effect in the surround? Okay, I'll give you one. During the 1975-76 mayoral campaign and senatorial campaign in San Francisco, Master Hua had us invite every mayoral candidate into the monastery to give a campaign speech. Who came? Diane Feinstein, running for mayor. She lost to George Moscone. We had the, uh, at that year, there was a stripper running for mayor of San Francisco. They almost always, somebody always, always does. She was a, a stripper and a madam, a lusty lady. She came in to give her campaign. Sherpa treated her absolutely seriously. What, what's your, what are you running on? What's your platform? He had us host every mayoral candidate. Like tonight, instead of a sutra lecture, if we'd had um, Mayor Tom Bates come in, or Chris Worthington come in, or Sherry or Susan McConaughey, McCloskey, what's her name? McCarthy. 
we could do that, and that would be completely what sh- I'd have all of you, you. You came for a Dharma talk. This is your Dharma talk. Listen to the candidates for mayor give their speeches. That's an influence on the neighborhood. Those candidates came back and said, geez, go to the Buddhist place. They listen quietly. They ask the most polite questions. We like the Buddhists. I'd go back there at a drop of a hat. They told us that, right? Mayor Moscone came. Shurfu came down only once. He didn't come down for any of those. He had us sit there. If we said, Shurfu, I want to meditate. I left home to get away. You go live. Who do you, you think this is a game? You listen carefully. Ask them questions. Who's going to be your leader? You choose. He had us all register to vote, right? And then choose our leaders. Okay, so one time Shurfu came down, Moscone. Moscone was a candidate, right? George Moscone, all right? Shurfu met him out front on the sidewalk and said, you have an opportunity to be the next mayor. Moscone was late, 20 minutes late. He came running down the street because he had been stuck in the previous talk. And Shurfu said, don't be late to be mayor, he said. Moscone was a really good Catholic, a devoted Catholic. He looked at Shurfu and knew immediately who Shurfu was, meaning a religious teacher of real virtue. And he did a dance on the sidewalk. He was was so happy that this padre, this priest, he didn't know what a Chinese Buddhist monk looks like. He recognized Shurfu immediately, and he danced, and he was so happy. Sure enough, he won. Right? He heard Shurfu's prediction. You can, be, you can win. You have an opportunity to win. Don't be late to be mayor, like you were late tonight. He gave a great speech, and uh, he won the mayor, and then he was assassinated in office. So, anyway, so a big influence on the neighborhood. Um, that's the ones you can see. What, what was it invisibly? Who knows? But uh, I think it was pretty profound. It certainly changed me. You know, went from being a wild hippie graduate student to being a monk, more or less. So, anyway, so what would, if you were free to choose your parents, your neighborhood, your clothes, your socioeconomic status, what would you pick? I think the Avatamsaka Bodhisattva would probably pick tough assignments. Tough assignments. Maybe that very husband you see at breakfast. Maybe that same wife who talks to you every night. Maybe those same parents who give you such grief. Maybe that's not an accident or a mistake. Who knows? It's certainly ongoing. One thing we can say for sure is it's a stream. It's ongoing. What we're receiving now is a result of what we've done. What we're doing right now is the taste of what's to come. Because it's it's dynamic. It is not static at all. And it can change in the flow of the very next thought. That's for sure. The dynamic nature of this, these relationships. Speaking of which, I'm going to make a, a, a 
raw advertisement. Tuesday night at Tiance Tea Shop, we're going to be at 7.30, we're going to be talking about relationships, role models. So we're going to be looking into the role models of parents, children, siblings. So it's, it's called healing the, let's see, healing, oh, how did it go? Uh, what was the verb? Um, old, new relationships in a broken, in a broke up world. So in a world where the family is pretty much under attack, the traditional views of the family, so old relationships, how we understand those models of dad, mom, brother, friend, teacher, ruler, or leader and follower, and whether it's possible to heal those in a world that is so broken. So that's that's the that's Tuesday night's topic. Sounds kind of heavy, but it should be pretty pretty lively. And uh, seven thirty at Tiants, plus some really really great tea. We're going to uh, because tonight is there out in the, the dining room. There's a huge event taking place. A parallel event to the sutra lecture tonight is happening in the back, and uh, so we're going to try to end by nine. And before we do a Guanyin Bodhisattva recitation session is beginning right this minute at City of 10,000 Buddhas. And I wanted to put some seeds down to that event here in Berkeley by um, inviting everybody to uh, sing a Guanyin song. And I was thinking about which one to, to start with. and There's a lot of them, and I thought the one that we can do without having to rehearse is the one that in your songbook that should be in front of you begins on page 20. Please turn to page 20. Everybody pretty much knows this by now. And if you don't, it's easy to learn. She carries me. She carries me. She carries me to the other side. She carries me. She carries me. She carries me to the other side. She is a
Wisdom. 
Because our hearts are one.